Welcome to In the Black with your host, Bob Dickerson. Our program takes a look at the socioeconomic issues affecting black America. From education to news and politics to business matters, we have the stories and guests that you need to hear about. Now, here is Bob Dickerson. Hey, welcome everybody. This is Bob Dickerson with In the Black on the Voice America Radio Network. Uh, happy to be with you today. Boy, this time is really passing fast. It's already September 9th. Already September 9th. Uh, I can't believe that the summer's almost gone. That was a song at one time. Summer's almost gone. I think that was a song at one time. But anyway, uh, happy to be here. Uh, got a lot of stuff happening uh, on today's show, a lot of stuff that's happening in this country, in this world, a lot of stuff that's happening with me. And I'm going to tell you just a little bit about most of that. I was on tri- Twitter, <laughs> Twitter. I was on Twitter this morning, and I don't know if many of you saw uh, uh, Djokovic yesterday uh, in the when he when he hit the linesman, he hit one of the umpires with the ball. Now. I don't think he was trying to do it, but he ended up getting disqualified. There are a lot of people talking about that on uh, on Twitter this morning. And boy, that those wildfires in California, it seems like every year we have more and more fires there. And it also seems like every year it's worse than the year before. So, uh, so really, uh, our hearts go out, prayers go out to all the folks uh, in California who are who are being threatened uh, by these wildfires and just pray for their safety and also the safety of the people who are out there, the firefighters and folks who are working to try to control that situation. Uh, it's terrible. Uh, Cardi B and Candace Owens are at it again. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure some of these views may be publicity stunts. I don't know. But but anyway, uh, it's almost always humorous. And and really, most important, I've got to wish a special birthday greeting to my mother. Now, my mother turned, and she's probably going to still give me a whipping when I admit that she turned 91 on Labor Day, on, on Monday. She turned 91 years old. Love you, Mom. Mildred Dickerson, 91, um, and she's in really good health. Uh, we're just thankful that she's, she's here. She's not letting us or letting anyone come to the house with the COVID thing. And so, uh, so we all did a nice Zoom birthday party for her on Monday that went really well. So thanks to all my kids and all of her siblings and other relatives for, uh, you know, for, for participating in that. So anyway, uh, it's going to be a busy week. Uh, if you were able to join me this morning on Facebook Live, you know, I'm on Facebook Live every Wednesday at 7 Central, 7 a.m. Central. I know that's early for a lot of folks. Uh, it's not that early for me. But, uh, but we had a very good conversation. I just want to thank all of the supporters and people who are watching our Facebook Live broadcast each and every Wednesday and you folks who are listening in on Voice America on each Wednesday evening, 6 o'clock Central Time, 6 p.m. Central Time for In the Black. And, of course, tomorrow, as you know, if you listened on Facebook Live, 
we're having a, a short workshop seminar for all of you would-be entrepreneurs and maybe some of you new entrepreneurs. Uh, we want to make sure that we help you find the entrepreneur in you to help you tap into yourself, understand what characteristics you need to bring to the game, uh, make sure that you cultivate some of the things that you, that you need to work on and maybe identify uh, some, some necessities, some of the stuff that you have to have. But anyway, it's all free, all free of charge. So, uh, so we'd love to get you in. We, we have a very special guest. Our guest today is a friend of mine. Uh, we became colleagues when I joined the board of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, which he founded almost 30 years ago. And so, uh, you know, he, he really, if you're thinking about the epitome of a civil rights leader, a man who fights for economic justice for all people, uh, a very well-read, learned but also down to earth, real individual that you can get to know and talk to. Then I'm talking about my friend, John Taylor. Good, hello, John Taylor. How are you? Hey, Bob, good, good morning. Good morning, hey, man. Hey, good to see you, good to see you yeah. out there. I am so happy to have you here on In the Black. You know, you are, uh, you're, you're a civil rights person. I, I guess a lot of times, once we pass the 60s and maybe the 70s, we stopped referring to leaders as civil rights leaders. I mean, John Lewis just passed away. C.T. Vivian passed away recently. They were noted as civil rights leaders. Icons. But, but, yeah. but, you're, but you've been in the civil rights game for a long time yourself. And I don't want to make it look like <laughs> it's that long, but you've been in the, you've been in the civil rights business. What, what, how did you get yeah. there? Well, you know, I, um, I, I grew up in Boston in, in public housing. And, and in those days, public housing was integrated. So uh, your, your understanding of white people, I'm a white person. I don't know if you uh, listeners have figured that out yet, but, um, but you know, your understanding of white and black and brown people, uh, it was different when you lived in neighborhoods and you had the same experiences and regular experiences with them uh, and they with me. Um, they were just somebody else. They were, you didn't see them as uh, black or brown or white. You saw them as, well, poor like you. <laughs> and you did stuff together. But uh, I went to law school and uh, I decided what I'd do is I'd become a criminal justice attorney and help a lot of kids from underserved neighborhoods uh, get out of crime. And so I was doing that. And of course, uh, I would say nine out of 10 we're guilty, and I might be being overly fair there, but but it was always uh, it was a lot of black on black crime, even in those days. And I remember thinking, man, what am I doing? Uh, especially after one case where this uh, elderly black woman came up to me. Uh, this boy had a uh, young man had had taken her pocketbook. She fell down and hurt herself. And anyway, the cops caught him, and uh, she came up to me after I I I caught the cop. I, I did something legally that got the kid off and she came up after the trial and she said, boy, I hope he moves to your neighborhood. And that just struck me because I'm thinking, well, who did I help? So I, I helped this uh, young man not go to jail. I helped this lady be a victim. And, and I began to think about 
why people were in the condition they were in. And that's when I began to think about economic justice and equality and income inequality, not really knowing a lot about it, uh, just having had the experience of being poor my whole life up to that point. And um, so I started to, uh, you know, understand it's like the, uh, who's the, who's the old bank robber that judge asked him once. He said, uh, he said, why do you, uh, why do you rob banks? You know, and the, and the, uh, the guy said, the, the, the robber said, because that's where the money is. <laughs> and, uh, uh, the point is that, uh, that's, why do we pay attention to banks and the financial services sector? Because that's where the money is. Uh, if, if you take a white middle-class neighborhood and you decide that you, the banks decide, we're not going to make any more mortgages there. We're not going to make any small business loans. We're not going to do any consumer lending in there unless it's high cost predatory, you know, high cost credit card kind of stuff. And so, uh, if you do that to a, a, a lily white community, I'll tell you right now, 20, 25 years down the road, what you'll see is more potholes, more police and fire, lower property values, schools that are uh, having a difficulty paying for everything, um, you know, just a dysfunctional community because their money is not flowing in and out, jobs are not being created. Uh, homes are not being valued at the proper, they're, they're not being repaired because people can't get mortgages and refinance to, to, to make improvements. So banks, I've always said this, in, in one sense, banks are our neighbor, neighborhood's best hope, but they also could be the worst nightmare. Fortunately, we have laws that I learned about in law school and later that create an affirmative obligation for these banks to lend to underserved communities. I mean, they're not doing it just because they're nice. Maybe some of them are nice. There are, I've met a few nice bankers. But most, you know, do it because it's the law. If you're credit worthy and you happen to live in a black neighborhood or a brown neighborhood, if you're moderate income, lower income, but you can show whatever you're trying to borrow, you can pay off, that bank has to lend to you. Uh, so uh, I got involved in that years ago, kind of by accident, but it's a tremendous tool and it's made a tremendous difference in this country up until the recession and up until I think the uh, independent mortgage companies took over the mortgage lending business and converted it to predatory lending. But that's made, been made illegal now and we're, we're back on track and we're getting banks now to commit more money, more and more money. And, um, well, let me stop there because I, I might have overly answered the answer to your question. No, no, no. That was great. And in, in about a minute that we have left in the segment, I would like to go back. And I've heard you say that before, that banks are our community's best That's hope. I, I'd like for you to expand on that for about a minute. And if we have to, to pick that up coming back on the other side, we'll do it. But sure. tell us more about banks being our community's best hope. Sure. So, our, the model of our democracy is is capitalism, um, and the way capitalism works is you need capital to have an economy that's healthy and working. Where does capital come from? Well, these days it's becoming from the federal government to some degree, uh, and from Congress. But 
normally and in all times, it comes from financial institutions. And where do they get their money? Well, mostly they get it from their, their being the stewards of, of the wealth of, of people who put it in the bank, who save in the bank, and both lower income all the way to wealthy. And their job is to reinvest that money into communities to keep those communities healthy and growing and create economic opportunity and jobs and, you know, affordable housing as well as high-end housing. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it's so, so critical to the health and well-being of any neighborhood banks. So we're, we're having a conversation with John Taylor, the founder, president and founder of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, a, grass, uh, a coalition of grassroots organizations uh, from all over the country uh, that focus on economic justice, fair housing, fairness in the uh, financial community, the, the Community Reinvestment Act that we may talk about just a bit later. Uh, great person, civil rights leader, very knowledgeable and passionate about what he does. Hey, we're going to take a break. This is Bob Dickerson within the Black on the Voice America Radio Network. Welcome back, everybody. This is Bob Dickerson within the Black on the Voice America Radio Network, having a conversation with a great friend of mine, John Taylor, the president and founder of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, an organization that I was fortunate enough to have been selected to serve on the board of directors, oh, I guess a dozen years ago. And, uh, and, and I'll just tell this little quick story. I got on the board because of a, a guy that I knew named Albert Jones, who was also on the board. And I had started having these town hall meetings around the issue of the lack of lending going to black businesses in Alabama by the Alabama banks. And of course, uh, they were not real happy with me when I had these very public meetings and it indicated that there was obvious discrimination. There certainly wasn't any lending happening even through the Small Business Administration uh, to businesses owned by African-Americans. It was it was sad and paltry, and, and I know the banks were embarrassed, but it brought me to Elbert's attention. Elbert brought me to the NCRC's attention, and I really, really enjoyed uh, being on the board, serving on the board, and I've also really, really enjoyed getting to know and becoming friends with the leader of this organization, John Taylor. Now, John, NCRC is uh, it, it's different in that you think that some organizations that fight banks would not have banks collaborate with them on other activities, but NCRC under your leadership has been able to do both. I think that that yeah. really is a balancing act and one that is commendable. So, so kind of talk to us about the, the fight and then <laughs> the, the, the return collaboration. Sure. Uh, thanks, Bob, and, and thanks for being such a leader at NCRC and being our chair for many years now. Um, under your leadership, NCRC has grown, and my, my job has been a lot easier as a result of that, of you joining. Um, and uh, happy birthday to your mother, to Mildred, 91 years you. old. That's fantastic. I'll be sure to uh, tell her. Yeah, so, you know, I, I tried. I, I try not to fight banks unless – 
they need to be fought, you know. And some banks, you know, they understand the law, and it's just a little nudge where you talk to them and say, hey, you're not doing enough lending for these folks or this neighborhood, and you cite some laws like the Community Reinvestment Act, the Fair Housing Act, the Fair Lending Act, you, you, uh, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. There's a bunch of stuff, and you can go to our website and uh, look at all this stuff. Uh, it's ncrc.org. But uh, the idea is um, you'll also run into banks that, you know, don't want to uh, necessarily uh, cooperate uh, and haven't quite moved into the 21st century as it relates to a lot of the economic justice and fair lending um, uh, mantras. So what we do is uh, we do a lot of research. We, we don't go in and just generally say you're not doing enough we we say you're not doing enough because here's the data and we're comparing you to other banks in these neighborhoods that do business and you're lagging behind in this area and that area and we're very specific about the things and when we sit down with the banks we always start with the ceo we sit down with the, the decision maker because at the highest level because ultimately that person uh sets the tone uh, sets the value proposition for a bank being fair and equal and, and uh, considering the, the credit needs of underserved populations. Uh, if that person doesn't think that way, then the, the bank is going to be reflected that way. So uh, talking to a middle-level officer, you know, who's trained to be nice to us and use the right language and stuff, is that's fine in, 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 for a conversation, but it doesn't get anything done unless you, you're – meeting with the CEO and really saying with detail. I remember one one CEO looking at a document I handed to him and uh, you know, we, we, I, he turned away and he talked to his person. He says, how does this guy in this organization have this data? We don't even have this in the bank because there's a lot of data out there and data drives the movement for economic justice. The more you can, very specifically show what a bank is doing and not doing in neighborhoods, who they're lending to and not lending to, where they're opening and closing branches, um, what kind of products they offer. Are they only offering jumbo loans? Well, jumbo loans means you're not loaning to low-income and moderate-income people, working-class blue-collar people. So there's a lot of things that are very obvious that you can you can change. Chase, Chase Bank once uh, offered only jumbo loans. They made that decision and we called them up. We said, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, that means you're not going to loan to working class. And to their credit, they changed it right away. They changed it back. But there are regulatory agencies that enforce these laws. And sometimes it's a matter of getting them to pay a little bit more attention to the laws and to, and to go in and do deep dives into the bank because they obviously have more information than we have at NCRC. But, but uh, the, the idea is that we sit down, we negotiate with them, relative to a neighborhood of what they're doing and not doing. We bring in a lot of community leaders, members of NCRC. We're a membership organization. We bring, the, we bring 20, 30 people with us. We sit down with the CEO and usually he'll have the CFO and, you know, the diversity supplier officer from the bank and, you know, whatever. And uh, we'll sit down and we'll say, here's what you're not doing, what needs to be done. Here's what the community needs are. And there's an, the law itself, not the regulation, the law itself is clear about there being an affirmative obligation to meet the community, the credit needs of the communities they serve. And that includes low and moderate income neighborhoods, and that's in the law as well. So we sit down, and by the end of the day, really weeks, um, we sign an agreement with them to, to – 
going forward three, four, five years of a very specific commitments for affordable housing, for small business lending, for keep, keeping branches opening, opened or opening some branches in, in uh, minority neighborhoods. And it's a, there's very specific dollars amount, dollar amounts, Bob, as you know. And uh, what, last week, we just signed another one for, uh, with Huntington Bank. Uh, $20 billion. And that, that over the last five or six years, we've done about now $200 billion of written community benefits agreements that are very specific on, on the amounts of money that's going out, including philanthropic dollars. Uh, so Huntington just raised their uh, uh, philanthropy from $30 million to $50 million as a result of this agreement. So this happens at a lot of banks. They know that they have an obligation. Nobody's asking them to make loans that are not going to be repaid. Obviously, that's how you probably would kill the law if, if the banks were just open the vault and throw the money away. But, but we are asking them not to ignore people who are working their way up the economic ladder, and the law requires them to address that. So we've had a lot of really great success in, uh, in getting a lot of um, – mortgages out there before the subprime predatory lending it was the growth in minority home ownership was growing rapidly and it was all prime loans before predatory lenders took over and uh, that 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 has since been made legal made illegal by act of congress uh, there's still ways that they find to do do unsavory loans but for the most part loans have to be qualified in a way that they're not. Uh, they, they have to begin. Believe it or not, we had to have this in the in the law. They have to begin with uh, a proposition that um, the 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 loan must be the borrower must show that they have the ability to repay the loan. Well, why would you make a loan to somebody if you didn't think they could pay it back? Because they sell the loans. That's what happens. The bank sells the loans. And basically down the line, some investor who thought he, he, thought he or she was getting a good, good investment um, finds out that they, they got a, a, predatory, a package of predatory loans that uh, are all going belly up. But the so bank let me, made let, money. Let, me, yeah. let, me, let me take you back to one thing. And I, I Sure. Thinking about, and I didn't realize we were up to $200 billion in community benefits agreements. Mm -hmm. But I want you to talk just, uh, you know, for a minute or so about the value that brings to community organizations and communities, because that's not just money that NCRC gets. That's money that NCRC has, has got the banks to put into community organizations and community work. Yeah, I'm glad you clarified that, Bob, because uh, when we do these agreements, 20 billion, 60 billion, 15 billion different banks, um, it's not money. There's almost, almost never is there ever any money in those agreements that's going to NCRC. This is all about lending and investing in the communities. And be, because we've set it up the system in a way that uh, community groups are involved in designing that benefits agreement with the bank, giving them input and, and reacting to their draft and bring, putting the draft agreement back to the bank and saying, well, you don't have this, you don't have that. We're, we're embedding community leaders and community groups into the process of, of whatever amount of dollars are in this agreement so that they, they necessarily get used to help build affordable housing, community development organizations, to help make microloans and other small business loans in the communities by, 
maybe they're a community development financial institution, a CDFI, that's a community-based lending entity. That, that, so they are all incorporated, and you can see the growth of all those organizations as we do these agreements throughout different uh, geographic footprints. So it's, um, it's kind of amazing, but it, it only works if people are willing uh, to be heard, uh, participate, show up and and when it's time to meet with the bank president or chairman or ceo uh that we hear that we have their voice in the room and they're helping to shape what whatever comes out of that uh that conversation john taylor the president and founder of the national community reinvestment coalition is our guest on this week's edition of in the black with bob dickerson NCRC, the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, a great organization that's involved in training nonprofit organizations, advocating for economic justice in our, in our country, um, crafting agreements with financial institutions, providing billions of dollars through nonprofit organizations to communities, uh, a great conference every year, of course, COVID-19 put that on hold for 2020, but, uh, but that'll be back uh, in 2021. A fantastic organization. Uh, we're going to be back after a break with more from John Taylor on this week's edition of In the Black with Bob Dickerson on the Voice America Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to In the Black with Bob Dickerson on the Voice America Radio Network. Hey, remember, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at B. Dickerson Jr. I'm on Facebook, Bob Dickerson. Uh, check out my website, bobdickerson.com. As a matter of fact, you can register for the event on Thursday. That's tomorrow, the 10th, uh, on the website or on uh, Facebook. It's free of charge. Tell your friends, anybody who is an entrepreneur, wants to be an entrepreneur, needs some training. I've done lending and finance and banking and helping people start and grow and develop businesses for a long time. I may know a little something. I don't know. But, uh, but certainly, we're willing to help. And this is, again, it's, it's free. We're having a conversation with John Taylor, the president and founder of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. And John and I have often talked about uh, why people vote the way they do, why people react uh, in this political sphere the way they do. And, and by the way, in, uh, in less than two months, there's an election. And uh, it's purported to be the most important election in our lifetimes. Now, we've heard that before, and certainly the presidential election when, when Obama ran against uh, McCain was very important. Uh, it ushered in something new, a first African-American president. Even the, the, the election with Trump and Hillary Clinton was, was an important one. I remember uh, the first one I ever really paid attention to was Kennedy and Nixon uh, as, as a, a wee lad, as they say. But, but when you really think about this is very important, uh, and just thinking about the fact that middle-class America, the majority of middle-class America are white people. Uh, middle-class Americans have been languishing in this same economic position for years and years and years, for about the past 50 years. 
the trickle-down policies didn't work for them. They still got a mortgage or two. They're still paying car notes. Uh, their kids are still having to get student loans to go to college. They're working hard, and they've been the most productive ever. But their economic condition hadn't changed, but they still support the policies that seem to be oppressing them. Why is that, John Taylor? Well, I'm not sure it's the policies as much as they support the rhetoric that they hear and, and, the, and the personalities, you know, that, that come across. You know, there's been a – it's there's no question. I mean, if you would – anybody uh, were to look at the data on the growth of the middle class compared to the, the GDP of the country, the growth of the country and the health of the country, usually it lined up really, really closely. As the country prospered, the middle class grew more, and, uh, both in numbers as well as uh, uh, their ability to uh, earn income and save money and build assets. Uh, but what's happened, what began to happen over time is we shifted from uh, making sure that the wealth of the nation and the, the success of corporations inured to the benefit of, of the employee in great part. In fact, the majority of which went to employees and benefits and so on. That shifted now to going to shareholders. <clears throat> and if you're a shareholder you know, of, a, of a big corporation, you, know, you love that because you're sitting home doing whatever you're doing. <laughs> Maybe you're on your boat and that day you'll have made $20,000 because your, your stock went up. You didn't do anything but go fishing. Uh, but meanwhile, the worker may have seen his benefits cut uh, or limited. I mean, there's just, there's been this shift and it's not a small shift. It's a very significant shift to the point where, you know, we have deeper poverty than we've had in, in many decades. The little, the middle class is shrinking. There's about, there's about 40 or 50 people who refer to themselves as middle class that don't know. If you or I met them when we had a conversation with them, we'd know that they're poor, but they, you know, they're not, <clears throat> they, 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 their house may be on the water. Uh, their car may be quite old. It, maybe it's still running. Uh, but they're suffering like a lot of uh, unemployed people and, and a lot of poor people in general and trying to get adequate health care, get, get their kids a good education, making sure that there's food in the refrigerator, that they can pay the basic uh, cost of living, utilities, and uh, mortgage or rent, and so on. Um, that's, that's become exacerbated. And what's happened is... The story, and you say to yourself, well, wait a minute. I mean, there's 20 million poor whites in America, 13 million, about 13 million poor Hispanics, about 10 million poor blacks. And, and you, you add that up, and uh, that's like, what, 43 million actually poor who are defined as poor. But then, as I said, if you look at the middle class, there's another 40, 50 million people there who you or I and most people, if they ever met them, would classify them as poor. So it's, how do we get here? I mean, there's so many people <clears throat> and why are many of these people still voting for people who cut their benefits, won't raise the minimum wage, uh, make it difficult for them to get health care, uh, take away money from public schools, don't want to repair the bridges and the roads and, and on and on and on it goes. Why is that? Because there's been a story that's been put out for a long time that we're poor, that people are poor because they're lazy. Well, 
anybody who's ever worked with a lot of low-income people uh, knows that they'll they're very hard working. They want to work. They want jobs. They want to build a life for themselves and their families. But the economic opportunities are disappearing for them and for many Americans. Because what's happened, and this, this pandemic is the perfect example, Bob Dickinson. The, we've gone through this uh, pandemic, and you see unemployment rates are going through the roof. People are losing jobs. Businesses are going out of business that will probably, 40% of restaurants will never be seen again. Uh, the most <clears throat> famous sports restaurant, sports bar, is, according to Sports Illustrated, was this ba- bar called the called uh, the Fours, uh, and it had referred to, in Boston, and it referred to the Bruins, the Celtics, the Red Sox, and the Patriots, and uh, that just closed after 44 years as and being named the number one sports bar. Never again is it going to open. It's not going to come back. Uh, but meanwhile, so all these people losing jobs, losing wealth. Do you know that? We've had more millionaires in this country become billionaires than at any point in our history during this pandemic. That's what's so screwed up about our system. Why don't we have a government, whether it's Democrat, Republican, independent, uh, and a mixture of all those, why, why don't we have people who go in there and understand their job is to make the economy work in a way that the average person is willing to work hard and play by the rules, that they have an opportunity to build a decent uh, standard of living for, their, for themselves and their family. That's, that's always been the expectation of people in this country, that that's what was great about it. That's why everybody wants to come to this country. Instead, we're being told that they're lazy and that the problem is immigrants who have always come. We all, some of us, unless you're Native American, you know, all of us came from someplace just a, a few generations ago. But the point was, when they came, we put them to work. Usually the jobs that nobody else wants to do, you know, laying track across deserts and mountains, uh, picking, uh, picking uh, fruits and vegetables in the, in the blistering sun in, in different parts of the country and so on and so on. Um, and that continues to this day, but they're being blamed for why some people are poor, which is ludicrous, or that most people are poor because they're lazy. And it's like, it's such a myth because who, you know, as someone who grew up in the projects, trust me when I say, first off, a lot of the fathers were not there. They either got uh, injured in the war or they, or they uh, got sick or they had alcoholism or they had a lot of reasons that they weren't there. So you had a lot of single mothers raising children. And, uh, and those are the ones that were, quote, the poor. And, and to this day, most of the people on welfare are women with children. And, and yet we've got this myth out there that just everybody wants to take advantage of the system when it, it couldn't be further from the truth. Everybody wants to build a decent standard of living. And, and that requires people to pay attention to what's going on. If, you may like uh, th- that a guy is pro-gun control, but is he also or she also somebody who is pro uh, decent wage. I mean, why should, there are so many people now who work full time. Some of them work two jobs that do not earn enough money to pay the basic necessities of life. Working full time. You know, in my parents' generation, yours is Bob as well, one person in the household could have a job and that person can afford to, to, to raise the family, whether it was in a rental situation or in a home. Today, you've got college-educated people, both professionals, earning decent incomes who are just getting by. 
And I run into this all the time. And they're white people, mostly, who are just, you know, they can't understand how they're working all the time. And they got two incomes coming in. And, they, and they're worried about having another kid because it costs so much to raise the kid. And are they going to be able to send them to school? What happened here? Well, what happened is people on Capitol Hill started worrying more about big corporations and the wealthy and less about the working class and people who are just trying to have a, a decent life. You know, they aren't trying to get rich, but they don't want to be poor and they're willing to work hard for it. And uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, our system has changed in that way. But we, the thing about a democracy is you get to, you get, you get to have your voice in this mess. And on, on November 3rd, you know, we're going to probably have the biggest election in my lifetime uh, in terms of its import. And uh, I mean, whenever have you, when else have you seen so many Republicans of note uh, coming out and supporting a Democrat who's running for president? That's how distorted the system has come. So hopefully what, what we'll see is the, the electorate will say, you know, it is time to straighten the ship out, uh, take, uh, uh, pay attention to what's going on and make the effort to, to make sure we have people in Washington who really do care about the average working class person. John Taylor, president and founder of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. John, it's been a pleasure to have you today. Uh, I'm going to get you back uh, because uh, we're, we're, again, in less than 60 days, we're going to make some decisions uh, about who's going to lead this country and decisions about the country we want to be in. We certainly want your input and want to hear from you post-election. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you. Thank you so All much. Right. This is Bob All Dickerson right. with In the Black. Welcome back to In the Black with Bob Dickerson on the Voice America Radio Network. Um, just voiceamerica.com if you want to listen. The good thing about uh, the Internet now is you can listen when it's live on Wednesday at 6 p.m., 6 p.m. Central Time. Or you can listen at any time. Anytime you want to go on and listen to Bob Dickerson in the black, hit voiceamerica.com, follow the prompts, uh, do a search for my name or a search for in the black. Remember, we spell it differently and you can find it. Uh, I really want to thank once again, my good friend, John Taylor, for coming on and uh, sharing information with us. Uh, John, as I said, as I when I introdu introduced him, um, we don't we don't refer to people as civil rights leaders anymore. But John is certainly a civil rights leader, and some of you will get this. He's also a silver rights leader, uh, making sure that there are resources, making sure that there is money, and making sure that people live a better life. Um, John is involved in and. A, a project called the Fair Shake. He talked about, he didn't mention it by name, but to make sure that all Americans get a fair shake. Uh, it is a shame that as America has been, has come through its most productive half century in terms of productivity and wealth building, that the middle class has been left behind and that the the resources are being hoarded by a few by the billionaires, um, the 1% as we refer to them. And, and that's, that's sad. You know, one of the ways to 
actually make money and make a difference in America is to start a business and succeed at it. And I, I want to make sure that you understand starting a business is not the answer. Even though I encourage everybody who feels like they want to, to really take steps toward doing that. Underscore take steps toward not necessarily just start because there's a difference in taking steps toward and starting. A lot of people start before they've taken the proper steps or laid the proper foundation. And so our workshop tomorrow will, we'll, and I'll give you a sneak preview. Uh, we will probably, I'm sure, and I, I usually do these things sort of winging it, but I know we'll talk about some traits that entrepreneurs possess, some of the things that successful entrepreneurs do. And, and one of those things is planning. As a matter of fact, the first thing that successful entrepreneurs do is they plan. Um, and so regardless of your passion, regardless of your perseverance, regardless of your persistence, uh, you can't trust those unless you've planned. And so planning is critically important. And we'll talk a bit about planning because it, it, it's, it's the trait, I think, that that thread that runs through uh, practically every successful entrepreneur that I know has an affinity for planning and also a strong desire to follow plans. And then the discipline that it takes to go back and review plans versus what actually happened. Those are very, very important. One of the other things that we'll, we'll talk about and, and sometimes we get this twisted. Uh, sometimes we actually buy the notion that good guys finish last. And, but that's not really true. Uh, I think that successful entrepreneurs have a sense of fairness. Uh, they certainly pr promote themselves and are viewed as being honest. Nobody goes and does business with someone who they don't trust. And so a person who has demonstrated a lack of trustworthiness or a person who has put forth an image, right or wrong, that they can't be trusted are very unlikely to be able to succeed in business. And the way you make sure that people trust you is you are fair, uh, that you are honest. And if you're fair and honest, then it's very difficult to get a reputation of something different. And so successful entrepreneurs have a sense of fairness. They are honest. Uh, another couple of things that I'm sure we'll talk about in looking at successful entrepreneurs is this willingness to work hard, a willingness to really put in the work, to put in the time, uh, to spend the hours, when you're starting a business, uh, a lot of things, there are a lot of things that you may have to sacrifice. Uh, in order to spend time in the business, you may sacrifice spending time with your family. You may miss a soccer game or a football game or cheerleader or, or a recital. 
you may have to get up early in the morning and leave home before breakfast and come back after dinner. Uh, you, you may have to be the first one there and the last one to leave and the one who skips lunch. But that's all a part of working hard and to, to get shoulder to shoulder with your employees if you have some, but you're in the lead, you're the leader. Uh, you're showing that you're willing to work hard. Uh, that, that old cliche, the harder I work, the luckier I get, uh, is certainly true uh, when it comes to being successful as an entrepreneur. And, and one other thing, and I don't wanna give it all away because there, there are several more, uh, but but one of the thing one other thing that it's important, and this is true in any aspect of life, any profession, um, any field of business, any endeavor, it's important to one know that you don't know everything. Uh, knowing that you don't know everything says that you listen to, you seek out and you listen to good advice. It says that you study. Uh, the Bible says study to find thyself approved. You study so that you will know more. Uh, but you admit that you're not an expert on everything. And so you go get help. Here's an example. If you are a restaurant owner, you may not know accounting. And if you know cooking and restaurant management and what kind of equipment and how to lay a, you know, make a, how to plate food and make it pretty and all that, then don't let the fact that you don't know accounting cripple you and hurt you. Go get someone who does. Uh, go get somebody who knows HR management. Go get somebody to help you who knows what you don't know because none of us know everything. And, and finally, one of the things we see with entrepreneurs who have succeeded is that most of them, if not all of them, at some point made mistakes. But what they did that others don't do is they did not let their mistakes cripple, derail, or stop them. So anyway, we're going to have a great time. That is tomorrow. You can visit bobdickerson.com or go on Facebook to get the link to join through Eventbrite. Um, we've had a great show. Once again, I want to thank my guest, John Taylor, for sharing with us. We're going to certainly get John Taylor back. And we're looking forward to hearing from all of you. Um, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, check out Bob Dickerson with In the Black. Thank you for tuning in. Please join host Bob Dickerson for another edition of In the Black next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a terrific week. Thank you.